0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Isaac Carroll, and this is What Do I Know? Well, I was supposed to be going to Israel at the end of November, what was supposed to be a 10-day tour of the Holy Land. It was about this time last year that I was in Israel. We had one of the greatest trips of my life. We toured almost the complete Holy Land, all the way down to the end of the Red Sea, to all the way up into the Gulan Heights, just right on the border of Syria. And I like to think that I saw the breadth and the width of Israel while I was there. It is a land that I have come to love deeply in my heart. I heard a preacher once say, how can I not love Israel? How can I not love Israel? One, as I studied scripture, God's spoken about it. I have walked those streets, climbed those hills, looked down through those valleys. I have touched the water of the seas of Galilee. I have been baptized in the river of Jordan. As I walk through each verse of the Bible, it tells me more and more of Israel and its people. So yeah, I have I have truly grown to love Israel. And as time has grown shorter and shorter, I have been more and more excited, could not wait. To finally get back to smell the air, to breathe it in sadly that uh that peace that I felt while I was in Israel, the confidence I felt as I walked the streets even at night, that peace is gone, destroyed completely by hate, a hate for Israel that is pretty much taken in the entire world. I've never known a country so small, yet garner such absolute hate. As Christians, we understand that these things must be. As the world hated Jesus, they hate anything to do with God. And Israel being chosen by God makes them the biggest target. Now, it's been on my heart that i talk to you about what Scripture says about the times that we are seeing right now. What could be the possibly the times we are seeing. A lot of things are happening. A lot of things are taking place and Scripture has much to say about that time. And I thought it would be good because I know a lot of people are speaking about these things and I would like to give you exactly what Scripture says so we can be of one mind on it. But because of things that are happening in and around my life, things that I have seen and, and things that I've experienced. It has been my own my heart to uh, talk about reconciliation. We had to be talking about this in my Wednesday night men's class recently. And I was quite surprised. I found that a lot of the brothers just didn't feel like reconciliation was all that important. I didn't understand that. When I asked them about it, they said, well, they knew that God required forgiveness and they were willing to grant forgiveness. But if someone wronged them, why should they seek to reconcile? Not to say that if someone came to apologize that they wouldn't receive the apology, but they didn't see it as important as, as much as forgiveness. Now, as I was talking to them, I could tell that a lot of them were thinking about old wounds, maybe old, old resentments. And as the night progressed, I could tell that those, those wounds had never been healed. And how could they? No one's ever really bothered to address the situation. I found I used many tactics that night to try to get my point across. I even went so far as to say, what if Jesus took the same approach with us? What if? He didn't come to reconcile with us. It was it was us who sinned. It was us who were enemies of God. But it was God who came to reconcile with us. Should we not take the same approach? I said, what does scripture teach us? That's what's important, right? Matthew 18 and 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and confront him privately. If he listens to you, you have won your brother back. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, take it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, then regard him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So three different times Jesus told you to go to your brother to reconcile. To win your brother back. How often do we go this far to try to, try to fix issues in the church amongst the body? When there are grievances and, and arguments amongst the body, how, how often do we go this far to fix these things? As I was reading these words, it struck me, why did Jesus say treat them like you would a pagan or a tax collector? The first thing that popped in my mind was both of these are sinners needing Jesus. And if a person is unwilling to listen, unwilling to soften their heart and forgive and reconcile, it shows they too are sinners in desperate need of Jesus. Now, I know as followers of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to live lives of peace and love, right? Forgiveness and humbleness are supposed to be fruits of our labor. Now, knowing us as people, I know that that's something we struggle with on a day to day. I mean, we may be, we may be followers of Christ, but we are still far from perfect and we still struggle with our own, our own issues. We still struggle with anger and frustration. We still struggle with pride. And that's all part of the walk. I get that. But as, As part of the church, I I know that in the past, that the church has had a bad habit of basically crucifying their own. I know a lot of Christians who will not step foot inside of a church because of a grievance or a past hurt. And it's sad. Why do we bicker and fight among ourselves? And I hesitate to use James because James's letter sometimes can seem harsh. His words can seem uh, strong and people like to think that he's not referring to them because of some of the some of the wording he uses. But James isn't talking to a sinful world. He's talking to a sinful church, He's talking to the body of believers. This isn't what James has to say. James 4. Starting in verse one says, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? is a source not your pleasures that wage war in yourself you lust and you do not have so you commit murder now hold on we must remember that murder here is not actual murder murder here is equivalent to anger and hate all right so when we when we're angry at someone we hate someone he's saying you commit murder this is what he's referring to and it says and you are envious and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask for the wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says this to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit whom he has made dwell in us, but he has given us greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. Now if this doesn't really strike you, let me, let me give you what Jesus says in Matthew. Matthew 5, starting in verse 21 says, you have heard that it was said to the ancients, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But if anyone who says you fool will be subject to hell fire. Jesus wasn't playing around when he said this. So let's look at what he has to say. What does Raka mean? Well, Rock call someone rock is equivalent to calling someone an idiot or a moron. Sadly, when we get frustrated with people, we like to we like to label them because of how we feel. It's, it shows the sinfulness in us, and it should not happen amongst Christians as followers of Christ. We we gotta do better. So I need to put stuff like this away from me personally. So what does it mean to call someone a fool? Well, we know in scripture, a fool is often described as somebody who's wicked or depraved. A person who acts contrary to sound wisdom. A fool is someone who follows his own inclinations, who prefers triflings and temporary pleasures to the service of God. Psalms 14 and 1 actually says, only a fool believes there's no God. Let's pick up in verse 23 of Mark. It says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there, before the altar. First, go and reconcile to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Reconcile quickly with your adversary while you are still on the way to court. Otherwise, he may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. For we know that Jesus is our judge, and he knows our heart. I've had many conversations with believers after a conflict, at some conflict or another, and the response I hear most often is that I have a right to be angry. And I often want to ask them, do we really have a right? I mean, if we're considering what Jesus went through to make us different, do we really have a right to be angry? I wonder. But I like what Paul has to say in his letters to Ephesians. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 26, says, Be angry, yet do not sin. And do not let the sun set upon your anger. And do not give the devil a foothold. Jump down to verse 31, says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, outcry, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. What well, we see here scripture tells us it's okay to be angry. We just can't we can't allow that anger to lead us to sin, and we must let that anger go quickly. What happens when anger is not when it's not let go and it has a chance to fester? We know that the anger turns to hate. These things don't happen overnight, not among believers. But if they're allowed to continue, it does happen. And what does scripture teach us about hate? First John 3 and 15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. First John 4 and 20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now I know what you're all thinking. I don't hate anybody. I may dislike someone, but... And I may not want to be around them, but that doesn't mean I hate them. A lot of times we like to push that word hate out of our own vocabulary when it comes to people we don't like. Well, let me give you the definition of hate. It says to feel an intense or passionate dislike. An intense or passionate dislike. And I have to ask, when you dislike someone... And there's a confrontation: how often is that dislike intense and becomes passionate? I believe quite often I've seen it myself happen among believers. This reminds me of Cain and Abel. What did God say to Cain before he fought and killed his brother Abel? If you read in Genesis four, it says, "Why are you angry?" said the Lord to Cain, and why has your countenance fallen?" If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you refuse to do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must master it. Meaning, when we feel sin and desire, and we know that sin comes in many forms, but when it comes, we must not let it control us. We must control it and not fall into sin. We not act on that desire. And we know that our dislike for anyone, especially a member of the body, isn't godly. That sin is crouching at our door. It desires to have us. It desires to lead us into the things that we feel. But we must master those things. We must overcome them. And this is why scripture teaches us discipline. Without discipline, we will react to every situation sinfully. I mean, Jesus teaches us we must deny ourselves we must pick up our cross and follow after him. If he was our example, our perfect example, then likewise we should try to be like Jesus in every aspect. Let me show you in scripture what Jesus meant by carrying our cross. Mark 8, if you start reading the 31st verse, says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this message, quite frankly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why was Peter rebuking Jesus? Well, the answer to that is in Matthew 16, starting in verse 22. It says, far be it for you, Lord, he said. This should never happen to you. He didn't want Jesus to die. What does Jesus say? Continuing in verse 33 says, but Jesus, turning and looking at his disciple, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he told them, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. To take up our cross is to resign ourselves to death. We know that in Jesus' time when the Romans made you carry a cross, You're going to carry it to the place that we're going to kill you. Now, we as Christians know that what we believe might get us killed. And currently, in the country I live in, it's it's not a crime to be a Christian, but that's not true in every country. And if you get caught being a Christian in some countries, it will cost you your life. But the thing that we don't think about very often is that also includes the life we want to live. Any life that's outside of Christ is a is a life that we need to sacrifice. Remember, if we have died to self, then the life we now live, we live in Jesus. And we have to take that, that concept to mind in everything that we do in our life. Because we belong to him. Jesus says, we are a slave to has mastered us. Now, either we're a slave to sin, or we are a slave to Christ. There's only two avenues. There's not there's not a middle ground. There's not a high ground. There's There's two grounds. You're either a sinful person who's a slave to sin, or you are a slave to Christ. We have to understand that professing something with our mouth is useless without witness. Jesus himself said, if you do not believe me, then at least believe on the account of the work that I'm doing. His work professed who he was. And as disciples of Christ, our work professes who we are. And what do I mean by work? It's our witness. So it's, it's it's not just our words; it's our our life. It's how we live. It's our actions and how we how we go about things. It's whether or not we reconcile with somebody. It's, it's whether or not we when we when we do something wrong that we ask forgiveness. It's we try to do what is right. And now we're not always successful at this because we are still in the flesh and we still have weaknesses and we still have self and we struggle with this. But it should be a struggle. We shouldn't just, as someone like to say, be free. We are free from sin, but that does not mean we're free to sin. We have to get that concept through our head. And you may say, well, how does one do both? How do we be free yet not sin? Because as as Christians and as, as human beings, we're going to sin. And I always go back to what Paul said said this in Romans. He said, I do that which I do not want to do. What I want to do, I find that I don't do it. But what I don't want to do, I find that I do that instead. It sounds complicated, I know, but what he's saying is is that we want to do what is right. It is our heart's desire to follow after Christ. We know what we're supposed to do and we seek to do it. Now, At the end of the day, we find that we have not done that to the best of our ability and we have failed miserably because we're humans. It's not because we didn't try. We didn't give up and say, you know what? I'm just going to be a sinner. This is the wrong approach. We don't ever give up because Christ didn't give up on us. What did Paul say? He says, as a athlete, I beat my body into submission. When I compete, I compete to win. What does he mean by all this? means we don't give up, we strive, we, we, we work, we condition, we practice. That's what our walk is. Our everyday walk is a practice. We're practicing every day as Christians. We're practicing Christians. What does Second Corinthians teach us? If we go to the sixth chapter, it says, As God's fellow workers, then we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of favor I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is a time of favor, and now is a day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no one can discredit our ministry. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And what does commend ourselves mean? It means to prove by deeds. It says, in great endurance, in troubles and hardships and calamities, in beatings, imprisonment and riots, in labor and sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, knowledge and patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness on our right hand and in our left, through glory and dishonor, slander and praise, viewed as impostors yet genuine, as unknown yet well known, dying yet we live on, punished yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet we're making many rich, having nothing yet we're possessing everything. We have been given the seeds of God. His word is the seed. Before I go, I'd like to remind you what Jesus taught concerning the seed. It's called the parable of the sower, and it's in Matthew 13. If we start in verse 18, it says, Consider then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the message of the kingdom, but they don't understand it, the evil one will come in and snatch away that which was sown in the heart. This is a seed that was sown along the path. The seed sown on rocky ground is the one who hears the word, and at once they receive that, that word with joy. But since they have no root, they only remain for a little while. But when troubles come and persecutions come because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed sown among the thorns is the one who hears the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke that word, and that word becomes unfruitful in them. But the seed sown on good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and produces a crop, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, or thirtyfold. Now, why do I mention this teaching by Jesus? Well, I believe Jesus is teaching us what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, we can see there's different stages people can take in their path to following Christ when they come in contact with the gospel. We see that some bear fruit and some do not. John 12 and 24 says, Truly, truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be as well. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I love you guys. Keep the faith. And may the God of glory keep you safe and strengthen you in Christ Jesus. Do me a favor. Pray for Israel. Till next time, goodbye.